I look forward to welcoming as many of you as can to our four o'clock service this afternoon. And do pray for, continue to pray for the work of the EFCC. We have a meeting this Thursday evening. Pray for that. And we come to Genesis 17. And Genesis in chapter 17. And we'll be looking at verses 9 to 14. And we're continuing our study through the book of Genesis but particularly at the moment in the life of Abraham. Last time we left Abraham, a 100-year-old man who had had a son by his maidservant, or the maidservant of his wife. He had just been told that his name had been changed to the father of multitudes. And this was significant because we know that Abraham had waited many years in expectation for the promise of God. And his own heart had become more and more decided that the Lord was never going to give him and his wife a child. And he has resigned himself that Ishmael, the boy who is now 13 years old, is going to be the one through whom God will fulfil his promise. And Abraham continues to believe that God will fulfil his promise, I think that's fair to say, but his faith is fading, is wavering as to having a son through Sarai. So the Lord comes to Abraham and changes his name and says, Abraham, you are going to be the father of a multitude of nations and I am going to bless you and it is not going to be through Ishmael. So it's in that context that the Lord comes to Abraham, whose faith is wavering, whose faith is flagging. And last time we saw that the Lord God assured Abraham by reminding Abraham of who God is. If you remember, he said, I am God Almighty, I am El Shaddai. I am the one who is the Lord God Almighty, the Lord of hosts. And then God reminds Abraham of his promise and reminds him of those covenant promises. And not only does God remind Abraham of his covenant promises, he reiterates them, expands them, and changes his name in order to put a permanent marker on those promises. Abraham, who's had to answer all those years with no children, the name Exalted Father, must now answer with the name Abraham, the father of the multitudes. So God puts a mark on what he is going to do, even by naming, renaming Abraham. But God is not finished yet. And that brings us to Genesis 17, verse 9. This is God's word. Let's pray as we come to this holy, sacred ground. Our Father, I thank you that you are the God of the covenant. I thank you that you are El Shaddai. And I thank you, Father, that you are mighty and powerful and you can be hindered in no thought of thine. And as we come to your word this morning, I pray that we would see Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout the generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep, between me and you and your offspring after you, every male among you shall be circumcised, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, 
and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut from the, off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And this is God's holy inspired an inerrant word. The Lord has reminded Abraham of his character. And he has reminded, reiterated, reviewed and rehearsed his promises to Abraham. He has expanded his promises to Abraham. And having renamed him to emphasise the certainty of his promise. He's renamed him to emphasise the certainty of his promise. God now institutes another action of assurance for Abraham. It's an action of assurance for Abraham that God is mighty and God can be trusted implicitly. God knows Abraham's faith is wavering. It is floundering and the Lord God wants to focus that faith squarely on himself. So he opens by revealing his character. Abraham, I am the one you are trusting in. I am El Shaddai. And then he reviews his promises because he knows that Abraham's faith will be strengthened by the word, his promises. But to the word, to the word, God adds something, a sign that is designed to confirm Abraham's faith in the word that he's just been given. And that something is a sign of the covenant. This is where God institutes what we normally call sacraments or ordinances. The ordinance, the sacraments of the church are baptism and the Lord's table. It's a covenant sign. It is a sign. Now we've seen covenant signs before in the book of Genesis... We've seen covenants in the book of Genesis. In Genesis 6, the covenant was spoken of explicitly. In Genesis 9, the covenant sign is spoken of explicitly. In Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, the covenant is described, a covenant is described. And in Genesis 2, in the tree of life, it's a covenant sign exhibited. But in this passage, Genesis 17, just as in Genesis 12 and 15, we have a clear example and an expounding of God's covenant with men. So in Genesis 17, we have a clear example of and an explanation of a covenant sign. And a clearer, a more comprehensive presentation of what a covenant sign is. And for what it is. More than we've seen so far in the word of God. But before God gives this sign, a sign that is designed to remind Abraham, to teach Abraham, to mark Abraham, to seal Abraham, to assure him in his faith. That is why it was given, to seal him, to assure him. God stresses, before that, God stresses to Abraham his obligations in the covenant of grace. 
So I'd like you to see two or three things as we unpack this very rich passage. And you can be in prayer for me as I unpack this as well. But number one, the joyful, willing response of the believer to the grace of God is to keep his covenant. To keep the covenant. If you look at verse 9, God emphasises Abraham's obligations in the covenant. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you throughout the generations. And as God does this with Abraham, we ourselves are taught an important truth. That the joyful, willing response, the joyful response of the believer to God's grace is to keep the covenant. We often get this muddled up. We say, well, are we saved by works or are we saved by grace? We are saved by grace, but the joyful, willing response to that is to keep the covenant. The joyful, willing response to the grace of God is to keep the covenant. We've talked all along about the fact that the covenant itself is gracious. Of course it is. God does not have to bless us. We live in an entitled age. But God does not have to bless us. He does not have to redeem us. He does not have to show us his unmerited favour. But he does despite our sins. And if you are honest and know your own heart, despite our own deserving of wrath, he graciously enters into a covenant relationship with us because he wants to bless us. But as he does so, and this is not so often taught, but it is clear from Scripture, a response is demanded. Have you noticed the juxtaposition of the words in verse 4 and verse 9? Look at verse 4. God said, and I'm going to read from the NASB because it's slightly clearer. Genesis 17 verse 4 says, As for me... Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. I've read that because it says, as for me, as, instead of behold. But when God begins the section in which he reiterates his promise to Abraham, beginning in verse 4, running down to verse 8, God is saying, as for me, this is what I will do for you, Abraham. But look at how he note, opens verse 9. As for you. God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. You and my offspring after you throughout the generations. So Abraham's covenant obligations are stressed with those words, as for you. So we see in the context of this gracious covenant, a covenant that God graciously enters into, a covenant in which God graciously provides the basis for the ground of the relationship. It isn't Abraham's work that gets him into covenant with God. No, it is God's free grace that draws Abraham in to the covenant. But in the context of this gracious covenant, there is a stress now on the mutuality of the relationship. There is no such thing, ultimately, as a one-sided relationship. There is, I mean, even, even if you think about relationships, it really does take, it takes two to tango, doesn't it? All relationships have two sides. That doesn't mean to say every relationship is a bargain. But the mutuality of the relationship simply means this. As there are blessings in covenant with God, there are blessings in covenant with God, there are responsibilities. As there are promises 
and favour. There are obligations. And God is stressing that here. Charles Alders says this in his commentary. The promise to Abraham and his descendants come in the form of a covenant which also placed definite responsibilities on them. In verse 4 we read, As for me, this is my covenant with you. Now we have the other side of the covenant announced in these words, As for you, you must keep my covenant. That reveals the very nature of the covenant. Although it is one-sided in the sense God set up the terms, there are two parties in this covenant as there are in every covenant. So here we learn that God's grace does demand a response. And that response always entails faith, commitment and obedience. That is the appropriate response to God's grace in the covenant. But I want you to see as well that even God's commands in the covenant are gracious. That is one of the things that comes out in this passage. The demands that God makes of Abraham are ultimately not simply self-serving, self-directed demands. No, the commands are designed to enhance, to assure and seal Abraham's faith. In fact, the specific command that God gives to Abraham in this passage is to make sure that he, Abraham, keeps the covenant signed wide to strengthen his faith. To strengthen his faith. So God demands Abraham does something that is good for Abraham. He says, I will not allow you to do this thing which I have designed. I will not, I will not allow you not to do this thing which I have designed for your own good. So the very demands, the commands of the covenant are gracious. And that colours the whole way that we respond to God. Apply it to us as believers. That's how we respond to God. That once we understand that his commands, not just his command, but all his commands are gracious. It changes the way we approach the law of God, the word of God, the command of God. And suddenly, the laws of God are not burdensome. They're not, they're, they're not a pain. They're not a burden that is placed on our backs to ruin our lives. No, they are things that he demands of us because he loves us so much that he will not let us miss an ounce of the blessing of the doing of them. They're for our good. They're to bless us. So the covenant promises come to us at God's gracious initiative. Yet to be in covenant with God entails our obedience to these duties. So God calls on Abraham and his seed here to keep the covenant. What does that mean? Recognise our obligations to him and to be committed to him in perpetuity. God calls us to be committed to him perpetually. When we enter into the covenant of grace with the Lord Jesus Christ, he calls on us to be committed to him perpetually, to continue to trust in him to continue to believe in him for our salvation, to continue following after him in obedience. The prime thing in this passage that God calls Abraham to is faith that evidences itself in obedience. That is our response to grace. I'll come on a bit later to this. It's not what saves us, 
But because God has saved us in his grace, we respond to him with joyful obedience. The thing that God is after is commitment. Ask yourself, where are you with the Lord? Are you joyfully committed to him? Or is Christianity just a sideline? Look at the language, as for you, you should keep my covenant. Derek Kidner says, the striking feature of the stipulations in this passage is their lack of detail. To be committed was everything. Circumcision was God's brand. The moral implications were left unwritten until Sinai. But Abraham was pledged to a master and only secondarily to a way of life. So the prime obedience, the, fight, the prime calling of the covenant to us is to, is to be committed to him. It's to, it's, to, it's to love him enough to be committed to him. So God calls on Abraham to be committed to him. Abraham, stay with me. Abraham, trust me. Abraham, be loyal. That's the nature of the covenant relationship. Loyalty, faith, commitment, despite all the evidence to the contrary that the promises will be fulfilled. So God calls Abraham to keep the covenant. The joyful response of the believer to the call of God's grace is to continue in commitment, loyalty, trust and faith. I love the simplicity of it, but it is uplifting to me. It is so encouraging to me as descendants of Abraham. Secondly, God appoints covenant signs to confirm the faith of his people. God in verse 10 begins to give Abraham a sign, a sign of the promises that he has made to him. And in verse 10, God designates the sign that he has chosen to be the sign of his covenant, which is circumcision. And God appoints that covenant sign in order to confirm Abraham's faith. In order to strengthen Abraham's faith, in order to establish Abraham's faith. That is why the sign was given, to confirm, strengthen and assure. Just as he gave the name Abraham to reiterate that the promises were going to come true, now he's going to give him a sign. So it's a continuation. It's see it like that. He's called Abraham... And circumcision is the sign, but it is the sign that God will keep his word. In fact, he's going to carve the sign into Abraham's body, so everywhere he goes, he can never get away from the sign that God has given him, that God will be faithful to his promise. Now, let me remind you again of the context of the institution of this sign of circumcision. God covenanted with Abraham in Genesis 12. He called him out of the land of the Ur of the Chaldeans to the land that God would show him. In Genesis 15, God established and confirmed that covenant. In Genesis 16, Abraham attempted to do it his way by having plan B, Hagar and Ishmael. In 17, chapter 17, at the age of 100, his faith is wavering. So God reviews, reiterates and expands on the promises which he'd made to Abraham in Genesis 17, 1-8. And then in 17, 9, he reiterates and presses forth this unequivocal injunction, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. And then in verse 10, he institutes 
the mark. The mark of circumcision to remind Abraham of his covenant promise. And in the context, the closest possible identification is made between the sign and the covenant. This is important stuff, so I'm going to be jumping around in the New Testament as well to explain this a little. Because the sign and the covenant are identified and they're spoken of almost as if they are the same three. Just look at, look at the language in verse 10. This is my covenant. God has just said in verse 9, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. Now we know what the covenant is because we know what God has said about that covenant in Genesis 12. And we know what God has said about the covenant in Genesis 15. And we see the effects of that covenant in the life of Abraham. The covenant is a relationship. It is a binding relationship with promises and obligations. But yet God says in verse 10, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you Every male among you shall be circumcised. Did you hear what God just said? This is the covenant that you be circumcised. And he calls the covenant the sign of the covenant. In this passage, the closest possible identification is made between the sign of the covenant and the covenant itself. They are so closely related that the sign is said to be the covenant and the covenant is said to be the sign. And that language is reiterated throughout the passage. Verse 10, this is my covenant which you shall keep. Between me and you and your offspring after you, every male among you shall be circumcised. But look how the language continues in verse 11. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Circumcision, and then in verse 13, so shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. We see how the covenant and the sign are spoken of almost interchangeably in this passage. This is language which we might call covenant realism. It's used to explain the relationship between God's covenant and the signs of the covenant that he gives us. I want to give you a few examples of this because it helps us understand some tricky passages in the New Testament. In Genesis 6, verse Sorry, Romans 6 in the New Testament, verse 3, it says this. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptised into Jesus Christ were baptised into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his... We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That's a mouthful of a passage and you're thinking, well, what on earth has that got to do with this? But there's a lot of theology packed into those few words. But I want you to zero in on one thought. Paul is saying that in baptism we've been united to Christ and raised again to newness of life. Now does Paul believe, this is important, that you are saved by baptism? Does Paul believe that you are saved by water baptism? Baptism is a sign of the covenant. No, Paul does not believe that. Where do you prove that in scripture? 
1 Corinthians 1.17, For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. If baptism saves you, that would be a foolish thing to say. Now you see, Paul, even in that phrase, gives you the sign that covenant signs, the truth, that covenant signs do not save you. Covenant signs do not save you. But in Romans 6, the thing that the covenant sign symbolises is the regeneration, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, our newness of life. So the outward sign of baptism is related to what the Holy Spirit does when we're changed and born again. So can you see that the covenant sign is related to the covenant itself? Let me give you another example of this, because Paul isn't the only one who does it in the New Testament. Peter, in one of those really tricky passages, 1 Peter 3, 18. 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the Spirit, in whom he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. And this is the verse, baptism which, now, which corresponds to this now saves you. Baptism which corresponds to this now saves you. Oh my, Peter sounds like Roman Catholic there. He sounds a bit papish, doesn't he? Baptism, which now corresponds to this, now saves you. What is he doing? Now he's applying the language of the covenant to the covenant sign. And before you can say you're reading into that, Peter bails me out. Verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter is talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which gives you a clean conscience and a new creature. That kind of baptism saves you. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. But what do you see? The covenant and the realities of what it speaks of in terms of the covenant sign. The covenant sign is used interchangeably with the reality of the truth. It happens all the way through scripture. Sometimes the Bible talks about if the covenant sign is the covenant and other times the Bible talks about is the covenant is the covenant sign. And it's important this because that's why some people get hung up in the New Testament and say, well, does baptism save us? No, but it is used interchangeably in Genesis 17. It is used interchangeably in Romans. And it's in, used interchangeably in 1 Peter. And you have to be careful how you interpret them because otherwise you end up teaching that the sacraments save you. In the Old Testament, the circumcision didn't save. And in the New Testament, baptism doesn't save. This is what happened in 1 Peter, what happens in Romans 6, and what happened on Roman Genesis 17. The sign being called the covenant, and the covenant being called the sign. And the sign being said to bring to pass what the covenant brings to pass. And the covenant being expressed in terms of of the covenant sign. Now, you're probably totally and utterly confused, but what does the sign of the covenant do? What does 
the sign of circumcision do here in Genesis 17? In Genesis 17, the sign of the covenant in and of itself does nothing. In and of itself, the sign does nothing. But the sign is given in conjunction with the promise. God had made promises to Abraham. And the sign is given in the context of faith. Abraham did believe, but his faith was wavering. But he did believe, and in the context of God's promise and Abraham's faith, the sign is given to assure and lift up Abraham's wavering faith. God gives the sign to confirm his word, his promise, and to assure us in our faith. So the sign provides an outward mark of the covenant community. All those males and those families who have been received the sign of the covenant are counted as part of the church. The males who have received the covenant sign and their families are counted as part of the church. It's made very clear that this sign of the covenant is a boundary. In verse 14, everyone who is uncircumcised but who dwells in the midst of Israel is cursed. But the sign signifies the need for cleansing from sin. It is a bloody sacrament, and the blood itself speaks of the pollution of sin and the need of covering of sin. The sign has the significance of marking a person of belonging to God. It's a sign and a seal, and it guarantees the promises of God to come to fulfilment. And the sign of the covenant is both a sign, an outward sign of spiritual reality, and a mark of God's ownership. And the seal as part of the covenant community leads us not to presumption, but to responsibility. So the sign is intended to strengthen the faith of Abraham. But what is the sign not? Well, the sign of circumcision was commonly done in the Near East. The Israelites were not the only ones who did it. Many of the nations, including Egypt, circumcised. The only nation that didn't was Phili- was the, were the Philistines. Hence, when David mocks Goliath, what does he say? You uncircumcised Philistine. So the nations were accustomed to applying the sign. But most of, most of them used it as a mark of priesthood. Or a sign of entrance into manhood. So God takes a sign that was common... And he devotes it to a special use, which is to mark and assure Abraham of his promises. So the covenant sign is not an entrance into manhood. It's not a sign of Jewish ethnicity. Because in Genesis 17 it made clear that if you were a foreigner brought with money, you were to be circumcised. In Esther 8, the Jews had been singled out for destruction. Haman tried to get a decree passed that would allow people to have free reign on the Jews and wipe them out. Mordecai spoiled that plot. And because the king cannot revoke his previous ordinance to allow people to attack the Jews, he he enacted a new ordinance that allowed the Jews to defend themselves. So here is the rule. You can attack them, but if you attack them and they defend themselves and they defeat you, they get to have your entire family's inheritance and they get to plunder you. Esther 8, 17. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy 
among the Jews a feast and a holiday. And many of the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Many of the people of the land became Jews. They converted, received the sign of circumcision, and been drawn in. Because the sign of circumcision is not a sign of Jewish ethnicity, it is a sign of membership in the covenant. The sign doesn't save. Paul made that clear in Romans 4. Abraham was pronounced to be a child of God, a friend of God, in Genesis 15, when it was said that God accepted his faith and counted it to him as righteousness. And Paul makes a big point in Romans 4 that happened before the sign of circumcision was given to Abraham. So the sign doesn't bring about faith. What is the sign designed to do? To strengthen a faith that is already dead. The promise is given in the word of God. Faith is placed in the word and the sacrament comes along behind it to strengthen our belief in the word. That's why the reformer said the sacrament must never be administered apart from the word. Because the sacrament is a visible word. So baptism, the Lord's table, is a visible word. It's a visible representation of God's promise. I thought it's important to understand that these covenant signs is a tangible representation which God carved into the flesh of Israel so Abraham couldn't walk anywhere without realising that God had taken him for his own. And that God had promised to bring seed. So the sign is a confirmation of God's promise to Abraham. And thirdly, God created sacraments to strengthen faith. In verses 11 to 14, a description is given of the sign. And a discussion is given of the consequences of that sign or of not keeping that sign. And we're reminded that God created sacraments not just as some kind of ritual or some kind of tradition, but to strengthen our faith. And that is why spiritually, for the last year, we missed the Lord's table. Because the sacrament is an action designed by God to sign and seal a covenant reality. It strengthens, it strengthens our faith. The covenant reality is always communicated to us in the promises of the word of God. So the weakness of our faith welcomes the sacrament as a sign of reassurance. The sacrament is a sign of reassurance. So every time we see someone baptised, every time we partake in communion, what are we doing? We are participating in a covenant sign to reassure, to strengthen our faith. And it's to remind us that God will never fail in his promises. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Wouldn't that lift up our eyes to see beyond just a mere you know, a tradition, to see a covenant sign being enacted to strengthen our faith in God? And brothers and sisters, we need strengthening in our faith. There is much to discourage. If you, if you think about the amount of cases that the Christian Institute are involved in, we should pray for them, but our faith is under attack. 
So let us remind ourselves that the covenant signs are designed to remind us that we are heirs to the promise that God made to Abraham and he fulfilled them in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is extraordinary. And next Lord's Day morning we will celebrate the Lord's table. And I encourage you to come to that with renewed expectation because God designed the covenant signs that we would be reassured, confirmed and strengthened in our faith. May the Lord bless the word for his glory, but for our eternal good. Amen.